0: This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and I'm so glad you've joined me on the 105th episode of Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist. I've practiced in Fayetteville, Arkansas for about 25 years now, and I wanted to extend the walls of my practice, so began podcasting two years ago now. I want to reach those of you who may already be on a journey of doing therapy and trying to understand what makes you tick. I also want to reach people who may have just been diagnosed with some kind of mental illness or disorder or who are having problems in their relationship for some reason, and they're looking for answers. And I want to reach those of you out there who might never darken the door of a therapist, but are just curious enough to listen in to see what somebody like me might have to say. Today, we're going to be talking about comfort eating, using food for comfort. Now, I'm not an obesity expert. I'm not an eating disorder expert. I turned to a colleague of mine, actually, for some of this information because she is. But I've also dealt more with anorexia and binge eating. And I have even more recently had some gastric bypass patients that I've tried to help them deal with their emotional connection to food that doesn't go away because their stomachs are smaller. There's actually a fairly new field of psychology called Food Addiction, and we'll talk a little bit about that. I'm going to give you some suggestions here, but I'm not a nutritionist, and it's really best to reach out to someone who is. They're trained to help you, and your time with them and the information you get can be well worth your own effort. Our listener email is from someone whose husband died of alcoholism, and she's dealing with very complicated feelings about it. But now we're going to turn to the subject of comfort eating. I have two distinct memories that involve eating. One horrified me. The other brought a sense of being understood. I, like most others, had a small fridge in my dorm room in college but I was beginning to develop anorexia, but I certainly didn't have a clue at the time that's what was happening. I was just eating less and less, and boy did I receive all kinds of accolades for becoming more thin. One afternoon, I ran back to my room. I hadn't quite reached the stage of anorexia where you mentally and emotionally detach from your body, and I was terribly hungry. The first thing I did was lean down, open the fridge door and reach for just something, anything that might fill me up. I just stuffed it in my mouth like a dog who had been fed for days. Then I sensed something. I looked up and my boyfriend was sitting in a chair in the corner watching me and laughing. Never mind that that was pretty boundaryless behavior on his part. I don't think I swallowed. I was instantly full of shame for being seen as so very out of control. He was a nice guy, and I'm sure it did look funny to him, but it only made me want to have more control over my eating. I've heard stories somewhat similar to this of people who binge, meaning they eat way too much food at one time, and they usually do it alone. But sometimes a family member will come downstairs and they don't hear them, and they're terribly, terribly ashamed. But now we want to forward 20 years later in my own life. My husband was walking down the hall of our home and could see me sitting on the den couch. I'd learned once again I wasn't pregnant after three years of infertility treatment. So, of course, I was handling those feelings by polishing off a big bag of Ruffles potato chips. He walked in the room as I was, you know, reaching for the bottom of the bag when you're trying to lick your fingers so you can get the bottom crumbs off and you almost turn the bag upside down and try to pour the rest in your mouth. That's where I was. There were dried tears on my face and some talk show blared on the television. He looked at me and he looked at the bag. And he looked at me and he looked at the bag. And all he kindly said was, do you want another one? No shaming, no laughter, just empathy. You know, I knew at that very moment I'd married the right guy. These two events, one couched in the development of an actual eating disorder. The other, the seeking of comfort through eating, have stuck in my mind for years. What did eating mean at those times? It's important to recognize the difference between an actual eating disorder Such as binge eating and plain old comfort eating. The first is a mental illness that tends to begin in adolescence and young adulthood. The two major characteristics of binge eating are eating in a fairly short period of time a much larger amount of food than what most people would eat, and two, a lack of control over that eating. It doesn't feel like a choice, it's more like a compulsion. But it can be triggered by emotions. For example, WebMD states, Nearly half of all people with binge eating disorder have a history of depression, although the exact nature of the length is unclear. Many people report that anger, sadness, boredom, anxiety, or other negative emotions can trigger an episode of binge eating impulsive behavior, and other psychological problems also seem to be more common in people with binge eating disorder. So what does that say? What's the difference? So I told you in the introduction, I turned to a friend and I did. Her name is Dr. Amy Scheinberg. She specializes in eating disorders. She also has a very funny, poignant, hilarious Facebook page called Grit and Barrett. She really sends a lot of great articles your way. But anyway, I'm going to quote her on the difference between comfort eating and binge eating. Here's what Amy says. Each are generally associated with a trigger, but a binge suggests a compulsive need to eat large quantities of food, not necessarily comfort foods, but foods that are generally labeled red light foods in a discrete period of time. Soothing may be a sought after effect of a binge But binging can also be associated with other effects, including self-punishment. Comfort eating, while not a clinical term, is almost exclusively for self-soothing. Foods chosen are generally associated with past memories that are recalled with fondness. There is no defined pace, and in fact, the food consumed may be eaten in normal portions. Now, you may be asking, so what's a red light food? And the way I understand it is that a red light food is one that can cause disease. It's known for being unhealthy. It has a high salt or high fat content. So that's why it's called red light. Whereas if you are eating for comfort and your mother used to give you green peppers when you were sad, then you're likely wanting to reach for a green pepper. (laughs) So what this sounds like to me is that comfort eating, if it happens once in a while, isn't really a problem. Having chocolate meringue pie at breakfast can seem like a great idea if you're in a funk. But when does comfort eating become a problem? It's widely agreed that these are the signs that your comfort eating is turning into an issue for you. First, you eat when you're not hungry. Second is you eat when you're bored or lonely. Third, you eat to distract from or avoid painful emotions. And that's, you know, that's your go-to. It's not that we all don't do that sometimes, but if that's the only thing you know to do, then there's a problem. Fourth is you eat because you don't know how to comfort yourself in any other way. That's kind of what I just said. And fifth is you're eating because you're ashamed of or even hate your body. So, if any of these are you, you might want to look at your relationship with food, what it means to you, and how you're using it. And again, as I said in the introduction, nutritionists and dietitians know this stuff like the back of their hand, and they can really help you get some great, accurate information about food. I want to touch briefly on the topic of food addictions. The idea that a person can be addicted to food has recently gained increasing support. This new research comes from brain imaging and other studies of the effects of compulsive overeating on pleasure centers in the brain. Experiments in animals and humans show that for some people, the same reward in pleasure centers of the brain that are triggered by drugs like cocaine or heroin are also activated by food, especially What WebMD called highly palatable foods. They're rich in sugar, fat, and salt. Again, those probably red light foods. These red light foods trigger feel-good brain chemicals such as dopamine. Once people experience pleasure associated with increased dopamine transmission, they quickly feel the need to eat again. So here's a sample of questions that can help determine if you have a food addiction. Do these actions apply to you? Do you end up eating more than planned when you start eating certain foods, like those potato chips that I mentioned? Do you keep eating certain foods even if you're no longer hungry? Do you eat to the point of feeling ill? Do you worry about not eating certain types of foods or worry about cutting down on certain types of foods? Or when certain foods aren't available, do you go out of your way to obtain them? Here's some other ideas about how you could tell possibly you have a food addiction. You eat certain foods so often or in such large amounts that you start eating food instead of working, spending time with family, or doing recreational activities. Your whole life is centered around food. Or you avoid professional or social situations where certain foods are available because you fear overeating them. Wow, that would really be difficult, wouldn't it? And lastly, you have problems functioning effectively at your job or school because of food or eating. Food and eating is getting in your way and you're becoming addicted to it. So if you're struggling or turning to food too often to put you in a different or better emotional space, less anxious, less depressed, here's some things to try. You know, I'm all about what you can do about it, right? Here at self work. First, ask yourself the question, am I really hungry? If so, what am I hungry for? Sometimes it's interesting because research shows that we're often thirsty. We're not hungry at all. Getting in tune with what you're hungry for lends intentionality to eating. I'm hungry for something really fresh tasting. can feel very different than, you know, I'm just hungry for anything. You can, again, go to a nutritionist to help you figure out your relationship with these different foods. Another idea is this. Food can act as a friend. You feel like it's there when you need it. But it's not, not really. The more we isolate and hover over iPads, the more food may be acting as our hangout buddy. But it's not a real person, obviously. Reach out to someone instead, and it will be much more rewarding. Here's another idea. A lot of the feelings that we're trying to avoid by eating Grief, sadness, guilt, anger, disappointment, humiliation. They're not easy to feel. But the more you avoid them, the stronger they can become. And then that becomes a cycle. You have to eat more to handle the growing feelings. I did a recent podcast on how to feel your feelings. You might want to give that a listen. But do anything that will help that's not self-destructive or hurt someone else. Try other ways of comforting yourself. Read, walk, watch an old movie, talk, stretch, meditate, laugh, paint. Do something else that helps you feel better. And those of you who've listened to many podcasts know that I talk a lot about self-acceptance. And self-acceptance is paramount to any good mental health. It's not resignation. But if you accept, hey, I have a food addiction, or hey, I binge eat, or hey, you know, I'm turning to potato chips too often to comfort me. You're practicing self-compassion. You're accepting yourself as you are, where you are, and how you got there. And then you can work on whatever it is, but not from a place of shame. Our listener email today is from someone who has several reasons to be sad. First, her husband was a severe alcoholic. And second, he died. So let's talk about this very complicated situation and one that is fairly common. Alcoholism is rampant. She says, November will be the second anniversary of my husband's death. He was an alcoholic and that's what finally killed him. He died a month shy of his 63rd birthday. For the first year after he died, I was so angry with him. I never really even cried it was actually on what would have been our 35th anniversary that I kind of let go. I had taken my granddaughter to her Mother's Day out and ran a few errands before coming back home. But when I walked into the house, it was so quiet. There were no flowers. And he always got me flowers on our anniversary. And it was the first time they weren't there. I sat down and really cried. Then I started feeling guilty about being so mad at him and felt that I should have been more patient with him. I know alcoholism is a terrible disease, and I know he didn't set out to become an alcoholic. Even though in my mind I know it wasn't my fault, my heart keeps telling me that there should have been something I could have done to help him. I just don't know how to move past some of my feelings. I've come to the conclusion that you don't really ever get over losing someone. You just deal with it differently. Some days are good, some aren't. Friends tell me that I need to move on, but I just don't know how to do that. Even though there were some very hard times, there were also some very good times over the years. I have a five-year-old granddaughter and a brand-new, beautiful grandson. They are the center of my world and keep me going. I do keep them while their parents work during the day, but I won't have them while they're on maternity leave. I know their grandfather is watching over them. It's just sad that they won't remember him or know him. So I got back to her. I'm so glad you've reached out to me, and I'm honored even more if you've never talked to a therapist before. Yeah, I forgot that part. (laughs) I do have a few thoughts to offer. I've counseled many people whose spouses have either died by suicide or have lived their lives so self-destructively that they contributed greatly to their own early death. It sounds to me like you're still going through what are normal stages of grief. Friends often don't want to think that grief can last a long time. It makes people uncomfortable to believe that you don't just get over it. They fear their own lives might get out of control. But you have sadness about his disease, and you had good times with him. You miss the things he used to do for you. You have the grandchildren you do because of his being in your life. All those things make things more complex. You also have justified anger about his self-destructiveness and his seeming lack of caring on how all of it might impact your future and your life. Plus, it's been my observation and my own experience with grief that the second year can be harder than the first. You don't get the support you did in the first year. You're living out a new normal, and that could be hard to accept. It's a reality that you didn't want, nor did you create. If you went to Elanon, and if you haven't, I suggest you do, you were active in trying to look at what you could do proactively. But surely there, you heard the message that his drinking was not your fault. There was nothing you could do about it. Nothing. And that's a horrible feeling. So, what do you do now? This month is the anniversary of his death. Maybe you can create a ritual to help you move on, but that means accepting all of the above for what it is. You know, I do wonder if you've been creating a new life without him in it. Instead, you're focusing on the grandchildren, which of course is fine, but what about you? What gives you purpose as an individual? What brings you personal fulfillment? If you get really stuck, I'd suggest you go to a therapist for a few sessions. It'll be worth it. Setting some goals for yourself might be very helpful. Getting excited about creating something in your own life that's meaningful to you and wasn't present when your husband was alive. That can feel odd, but it also can feel like you are moving forward. I hope you'll let this email be your first step in opening up. I'm sure you're far from alone in the situation in which you find yourself. Good luck to you. As I say, I read this email because I know that there are many, many people out there who are married or partnered with alcoholics. Or maybe there's some people who struggle with alcohol that are listening to this program. There is help. There's AA. There's Celebrate Recovery. Please, if this is you, accept responsibility for an addiction that you have, a disease that you suffer from, and please try to realize the impact it has. On your family, your family in the present, and your family to come. And if you love someone with alcoholism, please remember that it's their job to take responsibility for what they're creating. All you can do is try not to enable. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Self Work. We've got some exciting guests coming up. I actually had some trouble with my audio recording system, at least recording someone else, so I haven't been able to record guests for a long time because my own understanding of the technical aspects of this podcast are pretty limited. So when I have a problem, I have to get the experts in, and that can take some time. But I'm looking forward. We're going to have Kathy Sikorsky on, and she's an expert in caring for someone with Alzheimer's. I'm going to have Allie Worthington on, who is a Christian writer, and I'm going to talk to her about faith and mental illness and how the church understands mental illness and the message it can too often bring that there's shame involved. I think her perspective will be very helpful. So I'm looking forward to those. If you'd like more contact with me, I have a new Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash self-work love to have you join me there. Please send me emails about who you are, what you'd like for me to talk about, what kinds of problems you have in your life that you'd like for me to address. That's ask Dr. Margaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. And please subscribe wherever you are. You can also do that on my website at drmargaretrutherford.com. Leave ratings and reviews wherever you listen that is always so appreciated and just tell your friends. This past month I had more downloads than ever. I've reached over 300,000 downloads and I'm so excited to bring my message to you. And I'm frankly very honored and warmed by the idea that so many of you are listening. So thank you for that. I'll get back to you in the next episode of Self Work. Thank you for being here today. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret and this has been Self Work.